everyone. Welcome. Uh, my name is Brett McCarty. I'm a doctoral candidate at the Divinity School, uh, finishing up my dissertation on moral formation in the modern hospital. And it's my great privilege today to welcome our guest to this Theology, Medicine, Culture Seminar, Dr. Stanley Harawas. I'll introduce him in a moment, but first, I want to say a brief word about this seminar series and our hope with it. it uh, we hope that the seminar series provokes and provides a space for hospitable and engaging conversation at the intersections between the Divinity School and the world of medicine here at Duke and healthcare more broadly construed. And that in this space will provide the opportunity to develop new relationships, intellectual pursuits, and the context to ask questions that otherwise uh, either wouldn't be asked or you wouldn't be able to ask them with someone from a different discipline and practice. Uh, so it's a great joy uh, to be a part of this series and to have Dr. Harawas with us today. In two weeks, we'll have our next TMC seminar on November 17th, and that will be in the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and the History of Medicine. And that will be with Dr. Richard Payne, who uh, teaches at the Divinity School, is just about to retire and specializes in palliative care and the ethics and science of pain and its management. So I think that will be a, a very interesting conversation, particularly given what's going on around the opioid crisis today. Uh, so I hope many of you will be able to make it out for that in two weeks. But today, it's my great joy to introduce uh, and welcome Stan the Man, uh, Dr. Stanley Harawas, who's the Gilbert T. Rowe uh, Emeritus Professor of Theological Ethics at Duke Divinity School. I uh, just want to give a brief snapshot of some of the bundle of contradictions uh, that he is. He's the son of a Texan bricklayer who spent his whole life working in buildings built by people like his father. He's a diehard Atlanta Braves fan, which is particularly tough uh, these days. Um, <laughs> He's a pacifist who relishes in picking intellectual fights. He held an endowed chair in theological ethics and doesn't think theological ethics is a thing. He's a lifelong Methodist who self-describes as a faithful Episcopalian. He attends the Church of the Holy Family in Chapel Hill where his wife uh, is an ordained Methodist pastor, but she's a priest there at this Episcopal Church. And the, final word, the, and the final word on introducing Stanley comes from his student, Therese Lysalt who says, every history of bioethics notes that key players in the birth of the field were theologians. It may well be that the rebirth of bioethics, or better, the redemptive transformation of bioethics as the Christian practice of medicine, will also be led by theologians, thanks to the work done by Stanley Harawas. I'm grateful to count Dr. Harawas as one of my teachers and thankful that he would join us today. He's going to speak briefly, he said, for just five or ten minutes, um, and then I'll ask a him a few questions to get the conversation started, um, and then we'll open up toward the end to a more wide-ranging conversation with the room, uh, if that's okay. Dr. Harwell, thank you. Let me ask, <clears throat> how many of you are uh, in med school right now? Wow. And how many of you are pre-meds? Great. Um, I thought... I might just say in general uh, how it is that theology and medicine are necessary conversation partners with one another. And the answer is very simple. Uh, we are people who are born, have sex, and die. Those are the brass tacks of life. That's what medicine deals with. That's what uh, Christianity deals with birth, sex, and death. And uh, therefore, it's not 
unusual that medicine and theology would find itself having important things to say to one another. The difficulty is that um, medicine today has um, become such a more impressive enterprise than Christianity. Um, I illustrate this this way in terms of how people are educated. People in divinity school after a semester can say, I'm just really not interested in Christology this year. I'm really interested in relating. And in many divinity schools, they're told, right, go take some more CPE, um, wounded healers, blah, blah, blah. People in medical school can say, after a semester or so, I'm just not really interested in anatomy. I'm really interested in psychiatry. I'd like to take some more uh, courses there because I want to help people relate, which usually shows that they don't know dip about psychiatry since it's now biochemistry rather than relating. Um, but in medical school, they're told, well, who in the hell are you? We're not interested in what you're interested in. Take anatomy or ship out. Now, why is it that medical education is such a more morally interesting affair today than divinity school? It's that, it's very simple. People believe that uh, an anatomically trained doctor can hurt them. People never believe that an anatomically trained priest may damage their salvation, and people don't think anything's at stake in salvation. So. Um, medical schools today turn out to be much more morally interesting than uh, divinity schools. And this is real um, uh, moral training because I take it one of the things that you learn in medical school is attention. You learn to see a sick person. That takes some training because sick people are really not very pleasant to be around. And um, so you're taught to look for that which most people would prefer not to see. And uh, I, I think that that is um, uh, a great form of moral um, training uh, that uh, I wish we could be as good in divinity schools. The difficulty as I see it in medicine, however, is patient expectation is simply out of control. That people today think that if you are well enough that if your doctor is well enough trained in the sciences and knows how to apply it, that you may have a chance of getting out of life alive. And um, uh, that, that just puts a terrible pressure on 
physicians. Um, and it makes it very hard to communicate. In that respect, I think that I, I was there, so to speak, at the beginnings of, quote, medical ethics. It began about 50 years ago uh, at the urging of a quite extraordinary physician named Andre Hellers, who was a sheep physiologist. He was a pediatrician. And he studied uh, the birth of sheep in terms of whether they got appropriate oxygen. And Andre became friends of Eunice and Sergeant Shriver. And Eunice and Sergeant Shriver um, had gotten interested in medical ethics because of Mrs. Shriver's sister, who was mentally handicapped. And um, they set up a big conference at Georgetown that was a typical Shriver extravaganzas, where they had brought in people from around the world and they showed a um, film of a problem that had happened at Johns Hopkins where a Down syndrome child had been born with duodenal atresia. And when the surgeons came to get the op permit from the mother, she refused to sign. She had been a nurse, and when she had rotated through uh, the pediatric, pediatric ICU and, uh, and had encountered some mentally disabled children, she had a very negative reaction, and she wanted this child to die. So they pushed the respiratory, or they pushed the, they took it off the respiration, they, they, they put it in a cradle and they put it on the side of the ICU and it took 14 days for the child to starve. That was the first reaction and situation of the development of um, medical ethics. Doctors at the time thought, oh, it's so important for us to know how to think morally. We don't know how since we didn't take any humanities in college to begin with. Not that that would have helped, but they didn't know that. <laughs> and so, so um, uh, they said, oh, well, there's a field out there called ethics. And uh, it can be of great use to us. And they were taught, yes, there's two major alternatives. There's um, uh, utilitarianism and there's deontological alternatives. And of course, every physician basically ends up a utilitarian in terms of the actual choices they make. Though the fundamental commitments they have are deontological. Um, and they thought that they were having to think about ethics primarily because of technological developments of whether you keep someone alive or don't. Um, I think that the development of medical ethics, most of which I think is a fraud, um, um, 
the development of medical ethics is partly a response to, know, to try to find out how do you practice medicine in a morally fragmented society. And, and that no one has an answer to that, and there's not any ethics that can solve that problem. Um, and uh, therefore, um, much of the kind of investigations that go on in the name of biomedical ethics that has maybe some theological twinge to it, uh, I think um, um, is, prim is primarily an attempt of people with conceptual abilities to have a job. Stephen Toolman uh, wrote a wonderful essay some years ago called How Medicine Saved the Life of Philosophy. <laughs> and philosophers didn't have jobs. I mean, and uh, suddenly, uh, suddenly they started thinking, ah, every medical school needs a medical ethicist. <laughs> And uh, the rest is history. And, and we know it's a serious scholarly uh, endeavor because there are journals. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I tend to stand uh, outside that. I mean, if you, if you, uh, kind of, this is the last thing I'll say, um, I take it that the idea that you bring ethics to medicine um, is already a mistake because of what I was saying earlier about medicine already representing a form of moral training. And you think about it, what does every physician learn? You are to care for the patient that presents themselves to you in a way that presends all considerations other than what is good for the care of this patient. They could be a vile child molester, but if they got a bad gallbladder, you care for it. They could be under um, the uh, possibility of being killed for murder, but if they have hypertension, you care for it. I mean, it's true. I mean, those of you that are in medical school now, haven't you learned you are to care for a patient in a way that presents all other considerations? What an extraordinary commitment. It is a great gesture that says every human being has a claim to be cared for given what medicine can do. What medicine can do is primarily offer presence when everything is said and done. And that's a great thing. So um, I think you're under great pressure to um, leave certain patients behind. But it is still the case that I think it, there's an internal 
moral commitment in medicine that um, is extremely impressive. And physicians are rightly committed to it. That's enough. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so you, you mentioned just a second ago that you stand largely outside of the field of medical ethics, classically construed. Um, and I'm interested in one of the ways that you, you do that. So, so over the years, you've written on a huge range of topics from virtue ethics to political theory to war to issues of narrative and philosophical theology, but also at various times about medicine. And in particular, uh, some of your earliest writing on medicine uh, was focused on the church's engagement with people with intellectual disability. So what drew you into that work and why is it important, particularly as we sit here in an academic medical center? It was contingent. Uh, I was serving on a committee with Harvey Bender. Harvey was a fly geneticist in the biology department at Notre Dame, and he was on the board of the Association for Retarded Citizens at, in South Bend. And we got to know one another, and the board was required to have a certain number of people on it who didn't have retarded child, didn't have a retarded child. So they asked me to serve on it, and I, um, um, of course, retarded or mentally disabled children and people uh, scared the shit out of me, and I didn't like to be around them. So it took a real training to, <coughs> to, to learn to uh, know, I never, I was, we had a, in Indiana at the time, if you had an IQ below 89, you were not you were not allowed to come to public education. So we 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 built Logan Center, which was a place where men, the mentally disabled could could um, receive some care and education. And um, I was touring it after being on the board. And I had um, a young uh, male who's Down syndrome come up, and of course, you know, you're trying to be show that you're okay. And so you say, "Well, uh, um, Tim, how are you?" And Tim gets right in your face. You know, I mean, mentally disabled don't, don't know spacing. It's right in my face, and I think, and he gets his, puts his arms around my neck, and I pick him up, and I, all I can think of is how in the hell can I get this kid off me? <laughs> but uh, but of course I was having to say, well, aren't you sweet? <laughs> and and they he wouldn't let go, so I had to walk through Logan Center with this kid, and I and I began just I began to think about why it is that the mentally uh, handicapped um, are such a challenge to us uh, in terms of our the theodical presumptions. And um, so I started uh, writing about it, and in particular about how in modernity compassion's a killer. Um, uh, namely, 
the general presumption of people is it would be better that these children not be born in order to save them from having a suffering life. But the mentally handicapped don't suffer from being mentally handicapped. They suffer from us and our presumptions about what it means for them to be mentally handicapped. And so I, I started um, reflecting on that through a series of essays. And, um, uh, and then along the way, I discovered Jean Renier, who is a great saint who uh, developed the Larche homes where the central um, people are called the core who are mentally disabled who then some people who are not mentally disabled learn to live with the core members and um, it's been uh, Manier is a uh, <coughs> is an extraordinary man. Uh, he's Canadian who the first um, home is in Trolley, France. And that's where Jean lives. And it's just been a remarkable way of discovering uh, what it means to be a human being. What it means to be a human being is um, to know that you have all the time in the world to bathe someone who can't talk. Thanks. I want to uh, circle back to what you said earlier about the kind of remarkableness of medicine's moral formations and its moral commitments. Um, so in your writing, you often speak favorably of the way that medical education entails a particular kind of moral formation. You write that medicine is best understood as an ongoing tradition of wisdom and practices through which physicians acquire the responsibility to remember, learn, and pass on the skills of learning to live with a body that is destined to death. In your memoir, Hannah's Child, you write that the practice of medicine is a moral practice from beginning to end. Physicians must be trained to see and care for their patients in a manner such that all other judgments are irrelevant. I take this training to be one of the most strenuous moral commitments one could imagine. Physicians must acquire the virtues to sustain their commitment to be present to the ill, even when there is not much they can do to make those for whom they care better. So, so given that, if you were dean of medical education here at Duke, and responsible for how doctors are trained. What practices and modes of formation would you prioritize? And conversely, how can modern medical educators screw things up? Um, I often ask uh, first year's residents when I'm um, giving a lecture in a medical school, uh, how did you feel the first time that you were in a patient's room and you didn't have the slightest idea of what in the hell was wrong with them. And the attending didn't either. And they said, oh doctor, I'm in such pain. And you said, I think you're going to get a lot better. 
<laughs> because you're told you're supposed to give a positive response, even though you don't know they're going to get a lot better. Because you're part of the placebo effect in terms of your confidence. Um, um, it's true, isn't it? I mean, isn't that, uh, and um, I mean, I know this, and it works for me. <laughs> uh, uh, I think uh, I think I would uh, have them um, uh, have a course in which they read Plato's Republic, in which uh, uh, they had training uh, in um, philosophical analysis that raises all the insoluble problems that we deal with. Um, um, because I think what's oftentimes so desperately needed is um, knowing how to talk with patients and with one another. Um, uh, the person that really, I think, in recent times that saw this very clearly is Eric Cassell. Does anyone ever read Talking with Patients anymore? Two-volume work. It's really... Uh, Eric's former wife was a cultural anthropologist that he learned how to attend to these kinds of things. And The Art of Healing, his book, The Art of Healing, is a wonderful book uh, that deals with these. And so I would... Learning how to talk, I think, is a very important thing. You can either learn to talk and be a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a few years ago, uh, when Lori Zoloff was here, she said something to the effect in response to a question like that, that she'd have as a prerequisite for even applying to medical school uh, uh, aspirational applicants to spend a year as a uh, CNA, a nursing assistant, um, uh, without any of the trappings have already been accepted or within the program as a kind of prestige. Uh, so so I'm wondering, it seems to me that the practices of nursing and therapy, physical, occupational, speech, etc., may be better at, at kind of providing a space for the goods of healthcare Christianly understood to be pursued. Would you agree with that? And if so, what does that mean for how physicians and physicians in training should approach their colleagues and their patients? I think everyone's going to say, I agree with that when they're not ill. <laughs> but when you're ill, you're going to say, I want a doc. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, once I was on, I, uh, Sam Katz, who used to be head of peds here, and was, uh, I was over, he, he asked me over once and we were touring through uh, the pediatric ICU and um, I said, I, I mean one of the, uh, when you're in neonatology, I mean one of the heartbreaking um, developments is when a child is born that's under some great stress low birth weight obviously is part of it but um, and you put it on respiration to try to buy time to make a diagnosis and by the time 
that you make the diagnosis, the diagnosis is so dire, you wish you'd never put the child on respirator, but it's too late. Once they're on respirator, you can't take them off. And I asked Sam, how do you negotiate that? Uh, and he said, well, the first thing we do is ask the nurses. And I thought, are you a doctor? I, uh, I, I mean, that you would ask the, the nurse. But I do think um, uh, nurses are at least with the patient more. And so they, they know their, they, they learn how to read the body and a bit more. Um, I, um, so, I mean, I think nursing is simply part of healthcare and uh, a very important uh, part, as I, I suspect most physici physicians do. Yeah, great. So I, I want to paint two scenes for us, scenes that I can imagine only because of how your work has trained my own vision. So in the first scene, a doctor and her medical team stand over a hospital bed telling a seriously ill patient and his family that the next few hours are a matter of life and death. The second scene takes place 70 years earlier, and in it, that same patient is being baptized. Before he's lowered and raised in the waters, the pastor proclaims that this child is baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for both the physician and the pastor to declare life and death over a person? What does it mean that, as Foucault says, and you draw out in your work, physicians are the priests of modernity? And what does that mean for the work of healthcare practitioners and of pastors? Well, I think, again, I said that one of the great problems of practicing medicine is how do you practice medicine in a morally fragmented society? Uh, how do you practice medicine in moral anonymity between the patient and the, and the physician? Uh, and the anonymity is increased by that you don't share a language. Uh, I mean, you, if baptism, if there is the physician and the patient understand that language that you uh, quoted, um, then there's some way forward. Um, uh, but that you don't, that's such a rare occasion today. Um, and I, um, I think that um, that's part of um, the pain of physicians not knowing how to communicate <coughs> with a patient in a way that, I mean, what, what do they say? I don't think you should plan to go home. I mean, you die. Um, um, so, <clears throat> uh, the example I find to reinforce what I think is part of the difficulty, namely, I mean, what, my way, my way of putting it is, the great challenge in terms of the politics of our lives 
is how do you achieve cooperation between people that share nothing in common other than the fear of death? So death becomes the reality that forces us to believe that medicine is the good that we have in common to defeat death. I mean, that's just Hobbes. And that creates the difficulty of making medicine in many ways far too important. When you ask, I mean, when you, when you ask people what were the most important developments in the last centuries for <coughs> Um, the health of the population. They'll always say penicillin, sterile operating uh, um, uh, rooms, uh, antibiotics. It never occurs to people that sewerage and windows for the health of the population was the most important things that developed not crisis care medicine. Crisis care medicine may keep me alive six months more when I become seriously ill, but it doesn't keep the population alive six months longer because crisis care medicine is the intervention um, in um, life-threatening problems for individuals that have very little to do with overall care of folks. So our, we're now spending something like, I understand between 16 and 17 percent of the gross national product on crisis care medicine. Does anyone know if that figure is right? More. I mean, you think about that. I mean, why is that? Um, because it's all we got to believe in, in terms of uh, getting out of life alive. That's why. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like, given the, the importance of the Christian funeral, that pastors have a particular role to play in naming our fear of death in light of uh, our theological commitments. But the, um, so last question before opening up to broader, and I want to thank Warren King for his help in crafting several of these questions. Um, when you think about how Christians might engage health, healing, and medicine in the next 50 years, what do you fear and what do you hope for? <laughs> I worry a bit about what might happen to the, to what I, to, um, I, I'm to medicine in terms of its fragmentation. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, 
people forget the 19th century, I can't remember, there were something like 275 medical schools in America. I mean, everybody had a medical school and uh, of different kinds, and some of them are really bad. I mean, the AMA is um, uh, the, uh, um, is where uh, people started trying to finally get some control over what it meant to, uh, to train physicians. It became a monopoly, obviously. Uh, um, the, um, and I, I'm not sure what it will mean for it to fragment if, if, if it uh, comes up. Um, so that, that, that seems to me to be and I, I, I worry that even more um, we're not going to, to be offering medical care to people without plastic. How do you get to the poor is a, is a real problem. And then what was this? Give me a, give me a hopeful word. What do you hope for? Rediscover that there's nothing more wonderful in life than the worship of God. <laughs> That's what I hope. That's great. So, with that, I'd love to open up for questions from from folks in the audience. I don't. Uh, Carl has a mic. If that would be helpful. Questions. Tell me if I tell me if my descriptions of medicine in terms of your experience of it are off and in what way. Those of you that David. <clears throat> um, thank you so much, Dr. Harwas. Um, I can't speak too much on medicine uh, and, and but it, I mean, from my mind experience it seems on point in many ways. Uh, medicine is violent in, in certain ways. To physicians and to people, to patients. Um, I more had a kind of question that's more into like, your work on theology and the theology of disability, which I wonder if you never, I don't know if you've ever really named it as working on theology of disability, just like you wouldn't name it theological ethics. But um, I recently read Disabled God by Eastland, um, and that's considered historically the, the start of theology of disability, possibly. Um, and, and your work is around that time period, possibly, as well. And so I'm kind of wondering on your thoughts, because in a sense, when I look at Name of the Silences, you talk about, in a sense, relating to a suffering God. I think Eastland does that in a different way. And I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on comparing those two. Well, it's silly to worry about what came first. Uh, I, I think I was there a few years more earlier than Eastland. But she herself had disability, so she, um, and, and, um, and she had an appeal that um, was quite understandable 
but I thought dead wrong. Um, namely, in order for you to theotically understand why your disability is value is not without value, you need a disabled God. So the disabled metaphor became applied directly to <coughs> the doctrine of God. And I thought that that was a terrible understanding of the Trinity. Uh, so uh, I, but because I, I, I never have addressed that. She's got enough pain. So I just left it. Others? Thank you for coming. Um, you, made, you mentioned the placebo effect, and um, you mentioned that at, at a talk you were giving um, about how asking the, the residents to think back about the China Bay, you know, we're like, told, told a patient, you're going to get better, um, and giving that hope. Um, I guess something I struggle with is that right now in our clinical skills classes, um, I feel like there is an emphasis on, um, like, not giving unrealistic hope, but that, um, like, so for example, if I, like, if we were to see a patient, and I, you know, not, say, not reassuring that they'll get any, like, not giving that reassurance before you make the diagnosis or know about um, their prognosis at all. Um, how do you balance, I guess, that sense of hope then, like the physicians, like the, with the placebo effect, like that, that hope can bring itself, bring healing, but then also balance realism with that, with like that we actually don't really know. Um. I don't know. Um, I don't know how to do that. Um, you need wise physicians that have learned how to do it. And, I, and I, I assume you learn that on the floor by watching people who've been through it many times. But of course, the, the problem is, is every patient is different. And so you're not, you're not sure how to do it. And then it's not, I, I mean, it's increasingly seeming seems to me unclear who the patient's doctor is and, and oftentimes um, um, does the internist does, does the internist become the uh, bureaucrat of various specialties of which the patient gets divided up in, in terms of that I mean I think that's that's very big challenge that's, um, that's going on. And, and medical specialization I find very interesting in terms of whether it, what drives it um, is um, it, uh, medicine gives the impression that what drives specialization is, um, uh, is science. But I think one of the things that drives specialization is the, is the presumption that if the physician knows more and more about less and less, the, the less likelihood it is for them to make a mistake. Um, uh, but
But the problem is, is when you know more and more about less and less, you tend to see what's wrong with the patient, what you become the specialist in, rather than being able to negotiate the whole body. And so, I, so those, those are those are just questions that I have about the development of, of these concepts. And of course, if if you if you know more and more about less and less, also, and you become really good. I mean, you know, if when I had a hernia operation, I wanted a hernia surgeon that had done thousands of them. <laughs> the more you do it, the better the better off. And um, uh, and I did. Um, so, if you're a surgeon, do you want to spend the rest of your life doing hernias? <laughs> I uh, uh, I mean, how how do, you, how do you negotiate those kinds of issues? I I think I mean one of the things I think that one of in those kinds of issues is. I want physicians and nurses to think of themselves as educators. Fundamentally, what you do is you train patients how to go on in the face of illness, illnesses about which they're not going to get that much better, but there are some interventions that make it not worse. Uh, and, um, uh, and therefore, you're fundamentally teachers. Uh, and that that's, um, uh, I think that's a great thing uh, to do is to be a teacher. I, but it's, but it, the demand for cure is so, so present among patients, it's very hard to say you're a teacher. I was, um, I spent um, nine months once at, at the Kennedy Center for Bioethics at Georgetown. And um, we rotated through all the, uh, uh, all the divisions. And um, I was, uh, we were in um, um, surgery. And uh, I was on rounds with Dr. Huffnagel. Does anyone, ever, anyone remember Dr. Huffnagel? He, he, he invented the Huffnagel valve. Uh, it, uh, it was um, uh, for the heart, uh, and uh, but he was uh, he was a big transplant surgeon, and it transplanted um, uh, he trans he tra transplanted uh, primarily kidneys. But um, we were on rounds. We went into this room of this um, uh, lady who was probably in her 60s, African-American, um, very large, and she had a gangrenous leg. And he pulled back the sheet and uh, he started feeling the leg and, and, uh, and he assured her they were going to operate the next morning and he thought it would go well. When we went out, I said, why did, you, why did you look at the leg? I said, it didn't tell you anything. And she, he said, well, I've learned that when people have those kinds of limbs, they, they 
tend to want to, to simply have them not present. So they would just as soon to have it amputated as for me to try to save it with a vein graft. But I want her to know by touching it, it's still part of her that she can identify with. And I thought, what a wise physician. I mean, that's what. We walked down the hall about two or three more doors, and a resident stepped out and said, Dr. Huffnagel, would you look at this patient? And he took the chart and looked up very quickly and said, no. <laughs> and, that's right. and I said, hey, I thought you guys were supposed to care for patients. What, what in the hell are you doing? And, uh, and uh, he said, that patient came in a week ago with heart failure. And I looked at him then and I said, well, the only chance he's got is surgery. And the med people said, oh, hell no, let's medicate him and see if he'll get better because the surgeons killed 40% of them on the table. Uh, he said, now they've had him a week, he hadn't gotten better, and then now they want me to, uh, 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 to do surgery, and he probably would die on the table. He said, let him be their statistic. <laughs> now, now, now people, people have no idea that, the, that, that that kind of politics runs through medicine. The whole, the whole place of statistical lives. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and so the, the internal character of medicine oftentimes is just not known among patient populations. And I think that's too bad. There's I was interested when you were talking about physicians as teachers and physicians teaching patients to how to help patients go on because it seems like in the hospital when physicians don't have the answers or don't have the time to teach patients about how to go on when they're not getting well, they call pastoral services. Our, physical, they, 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 our they, physical therapists. <laughs> but then, but what's the role of, of, of the church and the chaplain in this enterprise? How do we rescue chaplaincy from simply becoming an appendage to a medical operation? The you, medical machinery. I understand. You can't. That's who you're going to be. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, I think you're... Uh, I, I think that... Um, you do the best you can, but um, I mean, you face the same problem that physicians do. How do you provide pastoral care under the conditions of anonymity? And um, um, I, I respect the uh, attempt to do that, but I think it's very difficult and um, um, I mean, it's like it's like Patton, who um, wouldn't want to go into battle without his chaplains. Physicians somehow don't want to go into 
interactions with the ill, particularly if they're going to die on them without their chaplains. But, but basically, um, they, they want the, the chaplain um, to represent something called spiritual care that seems to have a God that no one knows who it is. And I just think that's a deep challenge for you. Um, the um, CPE movement, I don't know what its future is. You would know more than I would as someone that is a practitioner. Yes, yes. I'll have a call. Can I do it without this? Sure. Okay. Uh, I'm 87 year old and I'm a very good friend of Duke and I love Duke and everybody in. For the first time, I had to go to hospital and I had the surgery and I was in the hospital for about a month. I always in my life, just visiting doctors, officers, thought that you want to have a good nurse. A good doctor is fine, but if you don't have a good nurse, you are dead. And that is what is what was happening to me. I had a fantastic surgeon, I was lucky. But the surgeon would come back to the surgery and maybe he would come back once a day or something like that. You are living with nurses. I think that a hundred percent agree with you that training good nurses maybe is even more important and essential than training good surgeons. You can always change the surgeon if you don't like, but the nurses, you are living with them 24 hours a day. And I had good nurses, fantastic nurses, and there were some bad apples also. Thank, thank you for that witness. Um, and then which I think is certainly true, and why it is that you need to pay nurses what they deserve, <laughs> which, they, which they don't get. Um, uh, they're not compensated nearly the way they should be. And um, also, I always say, if you want to know what medieval Catholicism felt like, uh, hang around any major research uh, medical school. Uh, uh, I mean, the hierarchy, um, uh, the deference to authority. And, I mean, it is. Uh, I mean, and you gotta, you gotta be wearing the right clothes at the right time. I mean, this, this, this is medi this is medieval Catholicism, uh, and um, uh, and the nurses are kind of. I've got the rear end of the stick on that, and um, uh, uh, and the the way that they are taught to defer to physicians is not exactly a happy reality. Um, so um, um, they are uh, often exactly what you describe the most interaction with the patient. And the nurse, I mean, 
Um, for example, um, uh, the nurses that that come in to, to um, revise your shunt. Now they're a specialist, <laughs> and uh, and you want them to be specialists, but you probably won't see them that much. They just come in to revise your shunt. So it's a uh, it's a tricky phenomenon. The, the, whole, the whole reality of hospital, I mean, that you, I mean, that you survived a month in the hospital, that's a miracle. I, I congratulate you. So we're scheduled to go until 1.15, but if you need to leave earlier, feel free to do so. Um, uh, other, other questions, Luke? Yeah. Um, thanks. Dr. Harwas, thank you for coming. Um, I'm a TMC fellow in one of um, For my practice, I'm in the ALS clinic. And one thing I've learned while I've been there is that oftentimes patients who choose um, invasive medical interventions that end up dying in ICU rather than choosing hospice or palliative care are Christians. And I'm wondering if you could comment on why that is and how, especially pastors of the church, might reframe how we think about that. It's a fascinating observation. I don't have an idea, a clue about how to account for it. Um, um, I, um, I think that one of the, one, one of the problems is when someone starts, um, is seriously ill and they start to die, uh, uh, um, you can't die too readily because it makes everybody guilty. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, uh, and the uh, and therefore you're caught with all the the um, family dynamics that have been out of control for years suddenly come real. Uh, and um, I mean. I, I don't put the phys physicians get blamed for keeping people alive to no point. I mean, I mean you know, um, um, Joe, who has never um, loved mom the way mom thought she ought to be loved, gets a call from brother Bob to say, Joe, mom's dying, you need to come home. And Joe flies in as quickly as he can and says, I want mom to get every kind of care she can because we're gonna keep her alive because I wanna show her I really love her. And the physicians call, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? Um, uh, so um, uh, I, I just am in deep sympathy with how those kinds of patterns occur and there's just, it's very hard to uh, have an you know, provide an alternative. Great question right here. Thank you, Dr. Harawas. Um, my question is, uh, when you were saying that you admire physicians because they have, a, they, they have that moral training, they have a moral obligation to treat patients despite their conditions and despite 
whatever isms they may have. I automatically thought of Mark chapter 5, um, 31 and 43. And I also wonder whose moral obligation uh, further the consequences of that treatment versus the cost of treatment. Um, does the ability to pay the physician stand in the way of that obligation to treat? Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, that you are to care for a patient in a way that precedes all other considerations other than what is good for their, the care of their body. Uh, that, that, that also Im implies if they can't pay, you're still caring for them. But of course, um, it, doesn't, it, it tends not to work that way. But um, it, that, that is the way. And look, there's no, I mean, I'll just say this is not particularly relevant to, to your point, but um, there is no solution to the financing of medical care Obamacare or whatever. There's no solution to it until physicians are no longer paid per illness. They have to be put on salary. And that is going to be a hell of a fight. Rick Morin had a question. Did Tenley, I wouldn't I wouldn't ask this of just anybody, but could you could you talk about how you're thinking about and preparing for your own death? Yeah. And and maybe up as a secondary to that, how you'd advise us to prepare for our own deaths and how to walk with others who are preparing for death? Yeah, I have a poem in front of my desk that I read every day that says You fear going where so many of your friends and great people have gone. How could you? Um, it, it's interesting. I, I've thought a lot about dying, and I thought it would scare the shit out of me, but it hasn't yet. Though I'm getting, I mean, it's not a theoretical possibility. I'm 77. Um, but um, I, uh, I go to a lot of funerals because I think that's good training ground to think about how to die. Um, and um, what, Warren, I've discovered in the last year or so, I've thought a lot about dying and what that means and how I would like uh, to die and you may not get that. I haven't thought about what it means to grow up. And that's, that's worse than dying. Because as you grow old, your body falls apart. <laughs> and, uh, and you're filled with pains that you didn't know you would have. And uh, I think uh, we need to think a lot more about, I mean, it's a great it's a great privilege to grow old because you get to comprehend your death on a daily basis. I mean, a lot of people don't. I mean, they die in tragic accidents or early, but I I mean, I'm getting to live through growing old and dying. But uh, it's. Um, it's a different reality. Um, 
I mean, your your body just isn't uh, working anymore. And uh, so I uh, I would like to know how to think more about growing old. Yeah. Right beside you first. Okay. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for speaking to us. Um, my question is, you've spoken about the obligation of physicians, but given that physicians have so many competing things upon, whether it's efficiency or quality or um, the commitment to be present with the patient, um, what would you say a faithful Christian presence in the worlds of health insurance, healthcare administration, healthcare, finance, quality improvement, all those things might look like given that they have such an influence on them. I don't have the slightest idea. Um, I don't understand how the insurance works in terms of uh, doing that. Uh, um, I, um, I would think that one of the things that would be helpful is for someone to help us understand the options. I don't know that we understand uh, uh, the options of, of how to finance. Uh, I mean, I don't think most people have a clue about the expense of what it means to train someone to be a physician. I mean, you've got to be in a place where you have the appropriate patient population to give you the uh, disease, diseases that you need for the resident to be able to encounter as part of their training. And that costs a lot of money. <laughs> And, and who's going to pay for it? Who pays for it are uh, people who have plastic that you can charge them $750 for an aspirin. Uh, uh, people don't understand that that's the kind of socialism that may be justified. But it is uh, how, how how to make candid the decisions that are made that no one knows how, I think, is uh, something no one knows how to do. And I'd add that uh, our friend and one of your former students, Abraham Nussbaum, has written some about quality improvement, and it's a topic that he's particularly interested in now, I think. Stan, a lot of folks here are asking themselves how practice medicine Christianly, how to become a person that has reasonable prospects of being described as practicing medicine Christianly. You just wrote a, an essay that some of us have read in the Washington Post on the anniversary of the, the centennial of the Protestant Reformation. And at least this question, Catholic moral tradition, uh, Roman Catholic moral tradition has a lot to say about attending the sick, about uh, norms of, for discerning how to practice medicine ethically and so on. Do you, what is, what do Protestant 
What does Protestant Christianity offer in your mind to that challenge of practicing medicine Christianly that maybe the Catholic tradition overlooked or let grow too thin? Well, I always think about when I was a kid and we had religious emphasis week in public schools in Pleasant Grove, Texas. And uh, we, would, uh, we would have the, uh, the rabbi who would say, as we know from the Talmud, and we would have the Roman Catholic who would say, the teachings of the magisterium and the moral theologians tell us. And the Methodist would say, it seems to me. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been lovely being here. Thank you.